This morning's sermon was written by Reverend Gerard Verink from the Canadian Reformed Church at Nearlandia. After the sermon, we will sing in response Psalm 90, stanzas 1, 2, and 6. Beloved congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, in the fourth stanza of the Canadian National Anthem, we have the words, as waiting for the better day, we ever stand on guard. There is that element of looking forward, knowing that in spite of any current trouble, there is a better day that is coming where there will no longer be any need to stand on guard. There is something similar in the life of the Christian as well. We too are waiting for the better day. It is the day on which, the Lord, which our Lord Jesus Christ returns and our salvation is complete. With sin and misery no longer in the equation, it is a day that we eagerly long for. Now in the scriptures, this day of Christ's return is spoken of often. We find it foretold here in our text from Zephaniah 1. We also read about it in 2 Peter 3. However, Zephaniah does not speak of it as the better day, but he refers to it as the day of the Lord. This is actually one of the main themes in Zephaniah's prophecies, the coming day of the Lord. When you look at the prophet's description of this day, then you get a very different sense from what we may normally think. According to Zephaniah, it is not a day to look forward to, but a day to be afraid of. Similarly, in Amos 5 verses 18, The prophet speaks the word of God, and he says, Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. And when you look at the words of our text in Zephaniah 1, then we can see why this day is not something to look forward to. There is no sense of joy or optimism about this day. For it is the day on which the anger of God is poured out in full. His wrath is experienced in a way that has never been seen before. One commentator called Zephaniah 1 the greatest treatise in the Bible on the anger of God. But again, the day of the Lord is not a one-time event. Nor is it not only an Old Testament reality. It is also a day that is still coming for the new covenant people of God. Peter clearly refers to it in verse 10 of chapter 3 in his second letter. Therefore we also do well to consider the day of the Lord, as the prophet Zephaniah presents it to us this morning. I read to you the word of God under the following theme. The day of the Lord is near. The timing of this day the character of this day. The timing of this day. The first thing that our text addresses is the timing of this day of the Lord. According to our text, this day is near. That word near is actually placed first in the original to give it the full emphasis. Literally, our text says, near is the great day of the Lord. It is a statement that causes a certain amount of shock and surprise. 
the prophet bringing the word of the Lord as we read in Zephaniah 1 verse 1 now makes it clear that he is not speaking about a day way off in the future, but one that is close and coming soon. That is reinforced when we continue looking at the text. The closeness of the day of the Lord is again emphasized when the prophet again says that it is near. But this time he adds that it is hastening fast. So not only is that day of the Lord close at hand, but it is going to arrive quickly. God is not slow in making this day a reality, but he is busy, hard at work. He does not delay moving forward to that day, for he wants it to come about. Now the fact that the day of the Lord is near is meant to stir the people of Judah to immediate action and to urgency. For you will agree, brothers and sisters, that if God has told his people that the day of the Lord was coming, but it is still a ways off yet, then that takes away from the impact of the message. Then there is no urgency to respond, but the people could take their time. But the Lord does not want his people to sit back and relax while waiting for the day of the Lord to come. No, he wants them to be roused to action immediately. The question is, what exactly does he want them to do? The truth is, the text does not really answer that question. This passage, similar to the first six verses of the chapter, leaves us with nothing except the certainty of the coming judgment. However, we can deduce what God wants his people to be busy with by working backwards in a sense. We find the reason for that certainty, coming day of the Lord, in the verses that come before and after our text. It was because of the sin of the people. It is because of the sin of the people we are talking, talking here about all the people. According to verse 8, it starts with the royal family and the royal officials. They were filled with violence and fraud, according to verse 9. They had made themselves great while not caring for those who were under them, thus ignoring their God-given responsibilities. But the sin of the people also included the so-called ordinary people, the citizens in Judah. The passage speaks about them in verse 12. As those who are complacent, they say in their hearts that the Lord will not do good or ill. The word that is used for ill can also mean evil. So the people at that time were convinced that the Lord would not take action of any kind. They say that he is a God who stands back and who watches everything and knows everything, but he does not do anything about it. According to verse 13, these people were really concerned with their goods and their personal financial security. They had built good houses. They planted nice vineyards. By all human standards, they had a good life. But in the midst of that good life, they took God out of the picture, and they said he would not act or intervene in any way. Now, we see why God presents the coming day of the Lord with such urgency. He says that it is near because the people 
have become so complacent. They do not reckon with God's active in intervention in this world, but they truly believe that life will simply carry on as it always has in spite of their sin and wickedness. Therefore, to shake them from their complacency, God tells them that this great day is near and that it is hastening quickly. They need to consider the fact that God is going to intervene very powerfully in his world. For their own good, they need to consider this fact immediately. There is no time to delay. However, congregation, we also know that it was any time between 25 to 50 years later that the Lord would finally fulfill this prophecy with the Babylonian invasion into the promised land and the exile that followed. So while the prophet proclaims that the day of the Lord is near and that it is hastening quickly, there are still quite a number of years that pass by. So how do we line those two up? In order to do so, we have to take a little step back and see what exactly the Lord is teaching his people with these words of the prophecy. As we said earlier, these words make it clear that God does not want his people simply sitting back and relaxing, doing what they want. And because we know why God's judgment was coming, namely on the sin of his people, then it is clear that God wants them to be busy serving him, following his commandments and his laws, striving to do so more and more. He wants them to be living in accordance with the obligation of the covenant so that he might richly pour out his blessings upon his people and that as a result, his people will give all thanks and praise to their God. Living in covenant fellowship with God does not mean sitting back and thinking all is well. It means actively going forward in faith. But what the people at this time had done is they had received the covenant blessings and they had taken them for granted. They had used them with selfish motivations and in their complacency they justified it by saying that God will not intervene. God will not do good or evil. He will let us do what we want and let us get away with everything. And so by speaking about the day of the Lord that was near and that was coming quickly, the Lord God tries to shock his people into changing their ways. He tries to startle them so they actively and purposefully live in the knowledge that God is soon going to intervene in a most powerful way. Now it is easy to look back and shake our heads at these people. How could they think and act like this? However, brothers and sisters, such complacency was not only a problem that afflicted the people of God back then. The same deadly attitude that took root in the Old Testament church also infects the New Testament church. That is what we read about in 2 Peter 3 as well. As we mentioned earlier, this passage also speaks 
about the day of the Lord. In verse 10, where it says that this day will come like a thief. Yet before this day comes, Peter writes, that scoffers will come with the question, where is the promise of his coming? For ever since the fathers fell asleep, all things are continuing as they were from the beginning of creation. These scoffers who actually arise from inside the church, they question the reality of whether the Lord Jesus Christ will ever return. They too are complacent. They believe that God will do nothing, that he simply lets the world continue on as it always has since creation, and that this predictable pattern will continue uninterrupted. And if we are honest, it would be easy for us today to find some sympathy in their question. For if those people who lived 30 years after the ascension of the Lord Jesus struggled to accept the actual reality of his return, what about us? For we now live not 30 years, but nearly 2,000 years after Christ ascended to heaven, and still he has not come back. Why does he take so long? Is he really going to return? All throughout the New Testament, the Lord Jesus and his apostles said that he was coming back soon. Christ himself says that to the apostle John, as we find in Revelation 22, verse 20, yet we would hardly think of 2,000 years as being soon. But Peter helps us to understand this seeming delay as people reason it. Whether it applies to the days of Zephaniah or the day in which we live today. For he says in verse 8, With the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. Part of this quote comes from Psalm 90, where it speaks about God as the eternal God. The God who stands above time has a very different view of time than people do. From God's eternal perspective, 50 years is not a long time at all. For a thousand years, according to humans, are as but one day according to God. So then 50 years is not even a quarter of a day, not long at all. And 2,000 years, that is only two days, again, not long at all. That is how God views time. So when the Lord tells us that this great day is near and coming quickly, then we have no reason to doubt him. God is in a hurry, working hard for the coming of his great day. For as Peter writes, one human day to God is as a thousand years as well. One day seems like forever as he looks on the sin and complacency of man. In that sense, the day of the Lord cannot come quickly enough. And knowing that God's divine calendar is different than ours should not let us fall into complacency either. For the day of the Lord will come like thief. Suddenly it will be here. For the people of Judah at the time suddenly the day of the Lord was upon them and the Babylonians invaded and took them into exile. God made haste but he did so slowly. 
He gave ample time for his people to repent, to be shaken out of their complacency, and to turn to the Lord for safety. But eventually time was up. The day of the Lord had come. And the same thing is going to happen with the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ on the clouds of heaven. Right now, God gives ample time for people to turn to him in faith and to repent of their sins. But eventually, that time of patience will be ended. That is the nature of patience. It does not go on forever, but it eventually comes to an end. Right now, still today, God continues to make haste towards the coming of his great and glorious day. But in his love for the people and wanting all men to repent, he makes haste in accordance with his divine calendar and not with our human calendar. The day of the Lord is coming, and it is coming soon. Do you doubt that God will intervene and that the Lord Jesus Christ will return? Brothers and sisters, while we would never say that we doubt it, the truth is that our life often shows otherwise. So often we too have that same complacency. We live as though this world is certain to continue. We don't live with the certain return of Christ governing our lives, the time at which Christ will judge the living and the dead. Instead, we so often live like those in Zephaniah's time, enjoying the many good things we have in this life, establishing ourselves in this world, but all the while acting and thinking like God will not do good or evil, that he will not intervene in any way. We assume that this world is going to continue, that tomorrow will come as every day in the past has. The sun is going to rise and set tomorrow. We will have the opportunity to do things that we have planned to do. And who would ever doubt it? Look back and see that this is the normal pattern. But if we truly live with the certain coming of Jesus Christ functioning in our lives, then we do not assume anything. For we know that very suddenly things will not continue as they always have. Eventually, time will be up. It will be the day of the Lord. Therefore, the Lord also gives us this word from Zephaniah out of care for us and our salvation. He gives us that shocking reminder that our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is coming back soon. He will return like a thief in the night. Perhaps tonight, perhaps tomorrow, we don't know. The idea is not that we try to predict when, but that we know and live with this knowledge that he will come back suddenly and unexpectedly. God shakes us from any complacency and reminds us that as long as he has not yet returned, we need to be active in striving to serve the God who purchased us with his precious blood of his son. He calls us to take up our cross and to follow the master who loved us and gave himself up for us. He calls us to do so before it is too late and the master returns and he finds us sleeping, living in complacency, not even thinking about his return, which he has told us is certain. And as part of this reminder, he tells us 
that this great day of the Lord will look like for those who continue to live in their complacency. The character of this day. Congregation, the character of this day, according to our text, is not a pleasant picture. At the end of verse 14, our text says that even the sound of this day is bitter. Just hearing about the great day of the Lord is not a pleasant sound, and it brings out strong reactions. The reason for that is really spelled out in verses 15 and 16, where the day of the Lord is first introduced as a day of wrath. From there, the text goes on to describe this day as a day of distress and anguish, ruin and devastation, darkness and gloom, clouds and thick darkness, of trumpet blast and battle cry. Now, each of these pairs that is used to describe this day has a specific purpose as well. In the first place, by describing this day as a day of distress and anguish, the Lord is actually addressing what lives inside a person, so their emotions. He says that when this day comes, it will leave the people devastated emotionally. They won't know how to even handle what happens on this day. It will leave them torn up inside and crying out for relief. Not only will it impact them emotionally, though, there will be physical effects as well. That is what comes out with the words ruin and devastation. Everything that could be seen with eyes will be turned into a heap of rubble. Nothing that had existed will be recognizable, which in turn would also have a further impact on the emotional state of those observing the judgment that God brings on this day. So with these first descriptions, then we see how each person individually will be impacted. And it isn't surprising either how strong the impact is. After all, as they have lived in their complacency, this utter ruin and devastation, this complete catastrophe, it is the last thing that they thought they would see. They thought God would just let things go. So not only their whole world, but also their whole world view has come crashing down around them. Furthermore, there is no way that they can attribute these horrible things to chance either. They can't say that this is bad luck for Judah, that God has nothing to do with it, because the last two sets of descriptions that we find in verses 15 do not allow for that. You see, congregation, when the Lord describes this great day as a day of darkness and gloom and of clouds and thick darkness, then he is not just using description or pictures that people are familiar with and could identify with themselves. Rather, with this language, he is pointing their attention back in history, forcing them to look at the evidence that he does intervene in world history. And when he does, it is powerful, and it is fearsome, and it is awesome, all at the same time. By describing this day as a day of darkness, he points back to the ninth plague he sent against the land of Egypt. In Exodus 10, verse 21, 
The Lord himself describes the darkness of this plague as a darkness to be felt. Then the Bible says in Exodus 10, verse 22, that it was pitch darkness for three days to the point that no one left their house during this time. Clearly, it was not just some natural phenomena that happened by chance, but it was God's active intervention, his judgment and wrath on Pharaoh and his land for hardening his heart. But that is not the only place in history to which God is directing his people's attention. There is also the description of the day of the Lord as the day of clouds in our text, which points to his people his people back to when he appeared before them on Mount Sinai, Exodus 19, verse 16, says that at that time there was a thick cloud on the mountain. Furthermore, according to that same verse, Exodus 19, verse 16, there was also a very loud trumpet blast, which is a description of the day of the Lord, as we find it in verse 16 of our text as well. So the Lord God is making it clear to his people through his prophecy that on the day of the Lord it will be a day when God himself appears to the people and they will all notice his coming. The loud sounding of the trumpet will ensure that. No one will be able to claim ignorance and say they didn't know. Only when the day of the Lord came for the people after Zephaniah's prophecy it would not be the trumpet sounded by God. It would be the trumpet sounded by the commanders of the army as they called the people to battle against the Babylonians. Or would it be through hearing the trumpets sounding among the army of Babylon as they march up against Jerusalem to wage war and ultimately carry out their judgment of the Lord? For the people of Judah... There was no good news that concerned the coming of the day of the Lord. This would be the day on which his wrath was poured out in full upon his people because of their sin and their complacency. They did not believe that God would intervene in any way, and now they only experience God's intervention in one way, and that is in the fullness of his anger against their sin. And yes, congregation, we know that it is the fullness of his anger, not only because we read it in verse 18, but also from our text. For in the verses 15 and 16, the word day is found a total of seven times, both in the English and the Hebrew. That number seven is significant, for in scripture it symbolizes perfection or completion. With the day of the Lord, the day when Jerusalem fell to Babylon, then God's wrath would not be held back. He would make it clear to everyone at that time that he does not stand back and simply watch things happen. Rather, he takes action and he intervenes with judgment and destruction for those who are complacent and do not walk in his ways. That is also why the day of the Lord is referred to as a great as great in verse 14 of our text. It is not great because it is so wonderful and amazing. There was nothing at all for the people at that time to look forward to. No, it was called great because of its intensity and the extent to which it impacted the people and the land with devastation 
that had not been seen for such a long time in the history of the world. Now it is important to note that much of this language is also found in the last book of the Bible as well. When we read about the time at which our Lord Jesus Christ returns, then we read about the angels pouring out the seven bowls of God's wrath in Revelation 16. So, is it, so again, it is the completeness or the entirety of God's wrath being poured out. We read of darkness there in verse 10. We read of a great city splitting into three parts and the cities of the nations falling in Revelation 16, verse 19. We read of the seven trumpets sounding in Revelations 8 and 9. You can't help but notice the connections to the last two verses in our text. And when you think about the fact that when Christ returns on his great day, all people will stand before the judgment seat of God and his wrath, which is described so vividly and in such a terrifying way in Zephaniah that it will be poured out so completely, then, congregation, what exactly is there to look forward to? Again, those words of Amos that we quoted in the introduction to the sermon come to mind. Woe to you who desire the day of the Lord. Why would you have the day of the Lord? It is darkness and not light. Is the day of the Lord really the better day? But there is one major difference between the people of Judah of Zephaniah's time and us as we look forward to the great day of the Lord. That difference is that in between the two days, you have the first coming of Christ, who not only will sit on the throne as judge at the end of world history, but who in the meantime came down to this world with a very specific purpose. That is, he came to suffer and die and to bear that terrifying wrath of God in our place. The day of the Lord, as we said just a moment ago, is the day on which his anger is poured out in full. And that is what happened there on Calvary. As he hung on the cross during those, during those three hours of darkness, the entire wrath of God was being poured out on him the entire time. All the horror of hell is what Christ experienced as he was forsaken by God. All the anger that we deserve because of our sin and because of our own complacency as we await his return. That is what he suffered for. And it is because of this unspeakable suffering, pain, terror, and agony that the words of John 5 verse 24 are such a beautiful comfort. There our Savior says, Truly, truly, I say to you, Whoever hears my word and believes him who has sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Brothers and sisters, the joyful gospel we may hear is that as we live and walk by the faith in the Son of God, we will not come into judgment. Our judgment day has already happened. It took place there on Golgotha, when our Savior stood in our place and where he bore the horrible and terrifying wrath of God that we deserve. Thus, we may have assurance of those words of Romans 8. 
There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have been set free from the curse of God's eternal judgment. We have been given the joyful assurance that as we cling to our Savior in true faith, that we have to look forward to is far different than that prophecy of our text. And it is all because our Lord Jesus stepped into our place. It is all because he suffered the fullness of God's wrath for us. That is a message that we must believe from the heart. That is a message that alone changes everything, changes absolutely everything. Not only does it give us a different perspective on the day of the Lord, but also when you believe that message, then it also removes any idea of being complacent from your heart and from your life. Then you don't sit back with the casual attitude that God will not intervene or that Christ will not return. Instead, you eagerly look forward to when that does happen because that is the day of your complete and full salvation. And as you look forward to that day with eager longing, you zealously and fervently live as one hastening the day the coming of that day. That is what we read in 2 Peter 3, verse 12. In his divine wisdom, God has so ordained things that his people, by living lives of repentance and holiness and godliness, they actually hasten the great day of the Lord. So let's think about it from this angle. Knowing the eternal joy and blessing that awaits you at that time, why would you not want to hasten it? Why would you not want to experience the fullness of salvation? Brothers and sisters, let's let this gospel ring in your heads and let it resound in your hearts. The wrath of God is gone, replaced by the joy and faith and the certainty of eternal glory. Through Jesus Christ, we may truly look forward to the great day of the Lord, the day on which the trumpet shall sound at the coming of our Savior. He has transformed it from a day of wrath to the day of blessing and salvation for those who believe in him. It is a day and a time that no eye has seen, nor ear heard, nor the heart of man conceived. And so, yes, we look forward with eagerness and with joy to the better day, the glorious day, the great day of the Lord. Amen.